in a few minutes here because I have a lot to go through today. All right, I think I'm gonna go ahead and get started. Um, can everyone hear me okay? And can everyone see this presentation with my mouse moving? Yes, I can see the mouse. Thank you, Lewis. Okay, I'm gonna just put um, pointer options. Okay, so thank you for coming today and listening to this talk. It's a little bit of nephrology um, potpourri because Dr. Thomas had asked, and a couple other people had asked, that I present my um, posters from ASN. So I'm going to get started with that and then spend the bulk of my time talking about um, hyperaldosteronism and reviewing a paper that came out of annals recently. So this was one of my um, posters for ASN. This was a patient Dr. Freyer and I saw back in May. And we wanted to review hypermagnesemia. So this is an uncommon problem. It's most often iatrogenic. It requires uh, prompt diagnosis and treatment as uh, the implications of missing hypermagnesemia can be serious as we're going to review here. And we describe a case of magnesium citrate uh, ingestion. And let me just minimize this, okay. So this was a 68-year-old woman who had a lot of chronic pain issues, including spinal stenosis, fibromyalgia, and some chronic kidney disease, among um, others. Um, during kind of late April and early May, she was evaluated multiple times for uh, acute on chronic low back pain, and she did have some limitations in getting in to see a pain specialist uh, because of COVID and because of appointment restrictions. And so she was seen mostly by primary care and um, a couple of emergency rooms in Southeast Iowa. As you can tell, she was prescribed multiple oops, um, medications that are all pretty uh, heavy duty meds and then developed opioid induced constipation and was instructed to take a bottle of over-the-counter magnesium citrate. This was about two to three days prior, about two, two days prior to her presentation. And she subsequently came into the emergency room with shortness of breath, um, inability to urinate, and persistent constipation. So we can see here that she's hypotensive and tachycardic. Um, her oxygen saturation was low. Low. She was acutely ill appearing and lethargic, um, tachypnic, and her abdomen was firm and distended, um, consistent with like an ileus or concerning for possibly an ischemic bowel. This was her initial exam in the local emergency room. She did have a mild acute kidney injury with a creatinine of 2.6. Her baseline creatinine was about 
um, three point, I'm sorry, 1.3, and then calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus, all quite high in a leukocytosis. And her abdominal imaging revealed massively distended um, stomach, small bowel, and large bowel. And she was subsequently transferred here. <clears throat> there was concerns for ischemic bowel and septic shock. Um, this was, I'm sorry, this was in her local emergency room. Her magnesium was high. This was noted in the documentation. Um, here in the UIHC emergency department, uh, surgery evaluated her and diagnosed her with ileus. Subsequently um, admitted to the MICU and intubated for encephalopathy. And in the MICU H&P, they say, consider a renal consult for hypermagnesemia. <clears throat> About 12 hours later, I was consulted at midnight. Um, magnesium was 7.1, but the reason that I was actually called was that patient was getting acidotic and her pressor requirements were increasing and the intern and the team there were concerned about um, oligouria and anuria. So they actually weren't, didn't really have the magnesium on their radar at all. We initially tried to do intermittent dialysis to help clear the magnesium um, out of the, the system, but she didn't tolerate it because she was subsequently on multiple pressors and so had to switch to CRRT. Um, on her two-hour labs, her magnesium was noted to be coming down, although she remained very, very ill, and uh, family ended up requesting uh, withdrawal care, and she died shortly after. So I wanted to just touch a little bit on the pathophysiology. Um, magnesium inhibits acetylcholine release across neuromuscular junctions. Um, we should remember this from medical school and um, one of the ways to monitor magnesium is with monitoring deep tendon reflexes, commonly in preeclampsia or preeclampsia treatment. Um, it also acts as a calcium channel blocker, which leads to vasodilation, cardiac conduction defects, EKG changes, and ultimately cardiac arrest. It inhibits PTH secretion by acting on the, um, sorry, the mouse is really sensitive. By acting on the um, calcium sensitive sensing receptor and leads to hypocalcemia, and then also smooth muscle relaxation leads to ileus. And this table just kind of shows different serum ranges of magnesium and some of the clinical manifestations. So, this patient's magnesium was around seven most of the time, but I think she just had such a prolonged period of hypermagnesemia that she ended up developing severe complications from it. Um, so classically, hypermagnesemia occurs um, in exogenous uh, magnesium consumption with reduced GFR. This can either be acute or chronic, and I think we're all aware of um, case reports, which is why we don't advise magnesium um, in patients with chronic kidney disease or dialysis. Um, Although I did find some case reports of people with relatively normal renal function, more typically elderly people, um, having bowel hypomotility disorders, having hypermagnesemia. And um, as we know, the magnesium levels are tightly regulated by the kidney. Treatment for hypermagnesemia is um, discontinuing medications, administering IV fluids and loose diuretics, um, if patients um, is producing urine, in our case, the patient wasn't producing adequate urine, there's really no way to get rid of magnesium in the body um, without 
renal excretion, and so hemodialysis may be necessary. Um, somehow my slides are advancing and I am not doing that. Not sure what's going on. So this case illustrates the challenges of care coordination um, across multiple hospitals and multiple towns. Um, this patient wasn't put on an um, opioid or a constipation regimen, which led to bowel hypomotility. Labs weren't checked and she likely had an AKI from all of the NSAIDs. The manifestations of hypermagnesemia were unrecognized, resulting in delayed consultation um, and delayed dialysis initiation and ultimately death. And this case, this case was um, avoidable and the Morbidity and the Mortality Conference uh, Internal Medicine will be discussing this in more detail tomorrow from 12 to 1. So if you're interested in um, involved in that, please tune in. So next case I wanted to discover um, is a case of Kaposi's sarcoma in the kidney allograft. Um, Many of you may know that human herpes virus 8 is an oncogenic virus um, and it infects endothelial cells. Post-transplant Kaposi sarcoma can occur from reactivation of latent infections, which is the most common, or it can be acquired during kidney transplantation. Most patients with post-transplant Kaposi sarcoma manifest with cutaneous reddish purple nodules or skin involvement, and there's a much lower percentage of people who have visceral involvement. So I will also say that um, post-transplant Kaposi sarcoma is quite rare in the United States um, because the incidence of HHV-8 is quite low, um, but this disease is really well recognized in the Middle East, um, in Italy, um, in the South America, especially Brazil, where this is actually one of the most common or the most common post-transplant malignancy. So a lot of the literature um, comes from Southern Europe, uh, Greece, and the Middle East. And so this was a case that I saw with uh, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Sanders over at the VA about a year ago this time. Uh, so the donor was a Central American male, and he died from staph aureus endocarditis from drug use. He was known to be positive for hepatitis C at the time of his organ procurement, but HIV and hepatitis B were negative. Both of the kidneys were transplanted into these two recipients. So recipient one is a 71-year-old male with end-stage renal disease, and this is our VA patient. He was induced with um, antithymocyte globulin and then treated with for hepatitis C um, with Gleprecavir and Preventisbeer. And then about five months after transplant, he was admitted for rising um, creatinine. His first biopsy was suggestive of BAMF2A rejection and he received additional um, immunosuppression, including antithymocyte globulin and methylpred, but there was concern for sarcoma on additional um, review of the biopsy, and so a repeat biopsy demonstrated an extensive replacement of the tissue with Kaposi sarcoma. He underwent additional staging, his immunosuppression was discontinued, and he underwent an allograft nephrectomy, but he died at home two and a half months later. The second recipient uh, was actually in New York. Uh, he was indux induced with basiliximab um, and also treated for hepatitis C. He developed encephalopathy a couple months after transplant and found to have low-grade HHV, 
ate during his workup and his immunosuppression was decreased and eventually HHV8 was undetectable and he did not develop Kaposi's sarcoma. So um, just to review the pathology, this shows a diffuse replacement of the renal parenchyma with these spindle cells. And I realize that the, the magnification is low here. And then um, this is immunohistochemistry showing um, HHV8 staining um, with uh, yeah, immunohistochemistry. And the pre-transplant um, donor biopsy did not have evidence of Kaposi's sarcoma by light microscopy. So um, as I mentioned already, HHV-8 is endemic in parts of Africa. This um, post-transplant malignancy is quite rare in the United States. And specifically, Kaposi's sarcoma in the donor allograft is very rare with only seven previously recorded cases, which I'll show you on the next slide. The mainstay is immunosuppression uh, de-escalation, and there's also good evidence that shows switching from a calcineurin inhibitor to an mTOR-based um, regimen will go into complete remission just based on this switch. There's no standard chemotherapy regimen, but a lot of different um, agents have been described and occasionally surgery is necessary. So I'm not gonna go through this table in detail in the interest of uh, time, but this shows um, the previously reported cases and then at the bottom is our patient. Um, the first case of this was recognized in 1989 um, and then subsequently within the last, you know, every couple of five or so years. And this is specifically of Kaposi sarcoma involved in the kidney allograft. So areas for further research include looking more at the relationship with hepatitis C and HHV-8. Um, we know that IV drug use is the predominant mode of hepatitis C virus. Um, some studies have showed association with HHV-8 seropositivity. Um, it's unknown if the risk of transmission for HHV-8 is similar to hepatitis C. And these donors, these kidney donors, probably represent a subset of donors that are at especially high risk. So some of the recommendations um, from the paper that we recently published was to start screening all um, augmented infection risk donors for HHV-8. This will help to strengthen the association, um, also improve the ability and the timeliness of testing. And this also allows um, transplant centers to select recipients who could perhaps tolerate a less invasive immunosuppression regimen or perhaps have an early conversion to an mTOR inhibitor um, and reduce the risk of post-transplant Kaposi's sarcoma. So thank you for listening to my ASN presentations. I'm now gonna switch into my um, journal club. So I'm talking about primary hyperaldosteronism no disclosures. And I wanna talk about the current hypertension guidelines. Um, discuss my journal club article, which is an article by Jennifer Brown that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine earlier this year. And then finally wanna say how we can be doing a better job in leading primary um, aldosteronism screening. So why does this matter? Every, we, we know that primary aldosteronism is well recognized, but that it's grossly underdiagnosed, even among our patients with uh, primary or resistant hypertension. 
And there's a good amount of evidence that um, there's higher risks of end organ damage in primary aldosteronism compared to our regular essential hypertension. So higher risk of heart failure, stroke, MI, atrial fibrillation, and then CKD, arterial stiffness, et cetera. Um, primary hyperaldosteronism is one of the most common causes of secondary hypertension occurring in about 5 to 10% of patients with hypertension based on current um, data. And the treatment is pretty simple. Um, we have a good medication, spironolactone and a plerinone that are simple, cost-effective, and it's targeted at the specific mechanism of hypertension. Um, obviously, we can also do surgery for removal of uh, large adrenal adenomas, although that does take a little bit more um, effort for targeted uh, therapy. So the current um, guidelines for hypertension. Um, most of us probably know these, but I wanted to just review. So this is the 2017 AHA ACC hypertension guidelines. And they're talking about here the prevalence is 8 to 20% um, of primary hyperaldosteronism um, in secondary hypertension. They say that the clinical indications for screening for hypertension are these. So um, history of hypokalemia, history of muscle cramps or weakness, an adrenal mash, mass, sleep apnea, or early onset hypertension or strokes. Things to look for on the physical exam include arrhythmias, and then it suggests to use the aldosterone renal ratio, um, including withdrawal of aldosterone antagonists for the last four to six weeks. And then it talks about follow-up testing, which I'm going to go with in a little bit more detail in a minute. And so this slide just shows that these are um, strong recommendations. So this is a level one recommendation, um, but unfortunately the evidence to support these recommendations is pretty low. So EO is based on expert opinion, LD is uh, limited data, and again, EO. So uh, they recognize the importance of screening for primary aldosteronism, but there isn't good evidence for using these tests. Um, here's the Endocrine Society 2016 Primary Aldosteronism uh, Guideline, and um, I think probably most of us are familiar with this algorithm. So they suggest the first step using the aldosterone renin ratio to detect cases. This is their equivalent of the strength of recommendation, so grade one recommendation, but limited amount of evidence. Then following up with confirmatory testing, then adrenal CT scans, adrenal vein sampling, and if you get through all of that, treatment with a mineralocorticoid agonist and or potentially treatment with a laparoscopic adrenalectomy. I should have made this a little bit bigger, but it's kind of a full slide, but basically what it's showing is various thresholds and cutoffs for um, plasma renin, plasma aldo, and um, the ratio. and. The point of this is I looked at the slide for quite a long time before kind of figuring out, I wasn't really sure what they were trying to say, like which cutoff am I supposed to use? Um, because they give multiple different cutoffs. So it's not clear. There's no clear um, ARR provided in the guidelines. There's multiple complex steps required for screening. And you have to take people off of their medications before testing. Um, the guidelines say you should draw the labs in the morning, you need the salt loading, like very complicated pro, um, process. And on top of that, um, if you have a very low renin, that could lead to a high renin um, ARR. 
the studies use different thresholds. And yeah, it's just not clear exactly, you know, kind of what labs to do. And, um, and included in this guideline, I did take this as a major uh, quote here. It says, the guideline recognizes that primary aldosteronism is a major public health issue. Um, but they also mention here that all of this detection and follow-up and screening are expensive. And so the present rate of screening is really low. And so most subjects are never screened. So they mention in the guidelines that we need to call physicians to ramp up the screening, but they didn't really make it any easier for us to do that. So despite all of these guidelines, very few cases of aldosteronism are detected or treatment treated. And these two studies show um, these were actually pretty interesting. So this was um, published in the journal Surgery. They did an EHR review of 37,000 patients, and they looked for patients with hypertension and hypokalemia um, that were hospitalized, I think, over a four- or five-year period in their hospital. And about 2.7% of them were screened for primary aldosteronism, despite the recommendation that all of them should have been screened. And then it was 3% of patients with hypertension and sleep apnea had been screened uh, in this study. In this study by um, Jaffe, they screened a smaller number of patients, um, but they found that only 2.1% of patients with resistant hypertension were screened for primary aldosteronism. So we know that the current guidelines, um, even though we have them, we're doing a really poor job of following them. So this paper was written by Jennifer Brown and published earlier this year in Annals of Internal Medicine, and it looks at the prevalence of primary aldosteronism. And what Miss um, Brown, Dr. Brown, and her colleagues argue is that there's a clinically relevant spectrum of renin-independent aldosteronism, not kind of a yes-no presence. Um, using the aldosterone-renin ratio captures only the most severe patients which misses a lot of the mild and moderate cases. And there's different ways to have excess aldosterone uh, production, including bilateral adenomas, unilateral hyperplasia, these micronodules, and then microscopic aldosterone producing cell um, clusters within the um, adrenal gland. And this has been identified by immunohistochemistry staining studies. And so, not only uh, Dr. Brown's paper, but other papers have recognized that primary aldosteronism is not a yes-no diagnosis, but it's a spectrum of disease. The objective of her paper was to recognize the scope of abnormal renin-independent aldosterone production, define the prevalence of primary hyperaldosteronism, and inform about the pathogenesis and treatment of hypertension and aldosteronism. So they, this study was a cross-sectional study at four distinct clinical sites in the United States. Um, so Charleston, Boston, Salt Lake City, and Birmingham, Alabama. They recruited patients that were um, adults, had a BMI between 18 to 30, and then they recruited normotensive, hypertensive, and resistant hypertension patients. The recruitment protocols varied slightly. Some um, protocols didn't allow diabetes, other protocols allowed patients that had well-controlled diabetes. They did exclude all known causes of secondary hypertension if patients had renal or cardiovascular disease, pregnancy, long-term steroid use, and poorly controlled diabetes. And this was to try to minimize um, co-founders in looking at uh, their population. 
the way that they are measuring um, in this study is that some antihypertensive medications were withdrawn before testing to minimize co-founding, and this would be, of course, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. They had patients on a high salt and a standardized potassium diet for five to seven days. And then on the day of testing, patients completed a 24-hour urine collection, blood pressure was measured, and then serum electrolytes, renin, and aldosterone was measured. And then patients were broken out into various categories based on their blood pressure. So normotensive was less than 130 over 80. Stage one hypertension was 130 uh, to 139 in the 80s. And then stage two hypertension was greater than 140 or over 90s or resistant hypertension, which is the standard definition. I will say that the patients with resistant hypertension um, were allowed to continue all of their blood pressure medications um, for safety reasons. And I think this is pretty standard on um, hypertension studies. And so what they looked at was the distribution of renin-independent aldosterone production and biochemically over primary aldosterone um, across categories of blood pressure. And I will, uh, yep, here's the next population. So the first um, group here is that patients who had complete data, which was um, about 1,800 patients, and you can see how it's broken down into the various categories here. So the Birmingham, Alabama um, cohort was recruited from their resistant hypertension clinic and they had the most patients. Um, they were excluded for inadequate um, urinary uh, sodium excretion on the oral sodium suppression test. So basically that was if they didn't meet the threshold of about 200 milligrams per 24 hours of urine sodium. So about half the patients were excluded because of that, because they didn't meet the sodium threshold. And then we have our eligible study pe uh, population, which are participants in the high sodium balance category, which is just over a thousand patients. Um, and you can see here how it's kind of broken out um, in each clinic. So about 40% of them came from um, Alabama, about 20% Salt Lake City, um, about 30% from um, Boston. There was actually two Boston protocols and then about 10% from Charlottesville. And of these thousand uh, patients or participants, um, about 700 were included in the um, suppressed renin group. So they had high sodium balance and suppressed renin activity. And again, the numbers here of each category are listed below. So this was kind of the group of interest, but they did also do some of their analyses using both populations. And then as mentioned in the previous slide, they broke um, their categories out into whether or not the patients had normotension, um, hypertension stage one, hypertension stage two, or the resistant hypertension, which was the largest group. And again, most of these patients were coming from the resistant hypertension clinic here in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, I'm sorry. So the mean age was 40, 47, 51, and 54. Um, BMI ranged between around 25 to 35. Um, about 40 or so patients were female. Most of them were white, except in the resistant hypertension group. There, about 60% of the patients here were black. Um, the untreated, um, the hypertension stage one and stage two groups, all of these patients were not on any blood pressure medication, so you can see zero here. And then this shows the breakdown of um, 
the resistant hypertension group, and importantly, none of them are on um, mineralocorticoid blockers or ENAC channel blockers. Um, and then just kind of showing the blood pressures here. So the untreated normal tension, their average blood pressure was 112 or about 68. This one was 131 over 81, 154 over about 90. And then the resistant hypertension group was 156 over 80. All of them had an adequate urine sodium, somewhere around 270 milligrams per 24 hours. And their serum potassium um, was 4, 4.1, 4, and then 3.9 with rounding there. So even the group with resistant hypertension didn't have overt hypokalemia. So I'm going to summarize the results and then I'm going to go through kind of slide by slide some of the individual results. So they discovered that there was a continuum of renin independent aldosterone production and this paralleled the severity of hypertension. The prevalence of biochemically overt PA ranged from around 11.3% uh, to 22%. And this was looking at the overall population, not the renin suppressed population. They found that the sensitivity of the aldosterone renin ratio is very poor. And in those with resistant hypertension and primary aldosteronism, about 25% of them had a serum aldo concentration of, of less than 10, which is below our current diagnostic thresholds. So this slide shows the distribution of renin-independent aldosterone um, by blood pressure category. So here's our untreated normotensive patients. Um, and then this shows um, what values of aldosteronism they had in their 24-hour urine collection. And they're showing the dashed line here of 24 micrograms is, current, is the standard current threshold for elevated aldosterone production. So you can see that even in the untreated normal tension category, a significant number of patients actually did have high aldosteronism. Same for the stage one hypertension patients, the stage two hypertension, we can now see that there's even more patients that are um, falling above this threshold and then in the resistant hypertension, um, it's an enormous number of patients. And some of those had super high urinary aldosterone levels, like almost 100 micrograms per 24 hours. So this kind of, again, shows the, the continuum um, and the fact that this is not just a yes, no, present or not present um, uh, diagnosis. Another way to look at the data is, um, the distribution of aldosterone production by blood pressure category. So again, this line is the 12 microgram um, threshold. We can see that most of the untreated um, normal tensive patients kind of had low urinary aldosterone as we would expect. But following this line down, there's you know, a significant number of them that do actually cross the threshold, even though they don't have hypertension. And the peak of these um, urinary aldosterone levels kind of moves more and more. The curves start to flatten out as um, patients have more and more hypertension. The prevalence of biochemically overt um, primary aldosteronism. So this is looking at the entire study population. Um, they did have quite a bit of data in this table. Um, and so I use the adjusted um, values, which are pretty close to the non-adjusted values, but in their analysis, they adjusted for things like 
weight, um, blood pressure, I'm sorry, sex, um, race, and presence or absence of diabetes. And so, and then they also used some different cutoffs to kind of help show the prevalence. So they called it the liberal definition. If you use a threshold of um, 10 micrograms per 24 hours, the conventional definition is the 12 micrograms per 24 hours. And then the conservative definition is using a threshold of 15 micrograms per 24 hours. And so looking at this, um, patients with normal tension, about 18% of them met the um, cutoff for biochemically overt primary aldosteronism when using this threshold. You can see that these numbers kind of increase as we go down the line here. And I wonder if this might have been a typo because that probably should have been higher than the stage two. But either way, um, then looking at the conventional definition, again, we can see that um, a higher and higher percentage of patients have biochemically overt primary aldosteronism as we go down these blood pressure categories. And same with the conservative definition. And these numbers make sense. If we make the disease harder to diagnose um, by using a higher threshold, we're going to capture fewer patients. Um, so that's why the numbers are so different between the 10 microgram per 24 hour group, the 12 microgram per 24 hour group, and the 15 microgram per 24 hour group. So again, this slide is the same, the entire study population. And then this slide is the uh, suppressed renin population. Um, so these were the folks that had a renin of less than um, 0.5. And now the, def the patients um, we find slightly higher. So 19%, um, 27%, 40%, and then 58% of these patients with resistant hypertension using the liberal definition meets the cutoff for primary aldosteronism. Um, I think this is a typo again, sorry about that. But uh, so again, 11, 17, and 25%. And then using the conservative definition, 5.86%, and then 17%, and 38%. Um, so we have uh, good evidence here that the disease is more common than we think, but varies based on the, the threshold of, that is selected. Touching a little bit on the aldosterone renin ratio. Um, so this is the kind of same data presented a little bit differently. So they say 9% of patients met the threshold for biochemically overt primary aldosteronism using the 12 um, microgram cutoff, but using the aldosterone and renin ratio only um, as it's currently defined by the endocrine society, um, only met, only captured 2.4% of those patients. In the stage one, it was 15.7% um, that the Brown and, and colleagues found. And in using the aldosterone renin ratio, they captured 35 here was stage two untreated hypertension, 20% and then 10%. And finally, in the treated resistant hypertension, 24% versus 6.6%. So the sensitivity of this test is pretty good um, in the 90% here, but this, I'm sorry, the specificity is good, but the sensitivity is really poor. And that's kind of exactly opposite of what we want for a um, screening test. We want to have really high sensitivity and if we have high specificity, that's helpful, but not required. 
And so what I'm trying to show you here is that using the aldosterone to renin ratio, we are missing a significant portion of patients um, who do have true hyperaldosteronism when measured using the 24-hour urine collection. And then this table down here just shows the plasma renin level, and it shows that all of these patients did have um, suppressed plasma renin, so 0 0.5, 0 0.4, and then 0 0.4. In the treated resistant hypertension, their renin wasn't suppressed, um, but that was, again, because they were on medications that are known to increase renin, like um, diuretics and ACE inhibitor and um, ARB. This part of the table shows the serum potassium change per five microgram increase in urinary aldosterone. So going from zero to five and then five to 10 and then 10 to 15, what they found was that the serum potassium level on average decreases by around 0.05 to round. This was for the unadjusted and then the adjusted again is um, adjusted based on sex, weight, um, BMI and presence or absence of diabetes. And so going from, for example, um, 10 micrograms per 24 hours of aldosterone to 15, the serum plasma uh, potassium really drops a very small amount, making, again, this potassium not very useful in a, for a screening, um, which is directly um, in contradiction to what the guidelines are earlier that I showed you. So the um, Endocrine Society guidelines and the ACA um, AHA guidelines say that you should use potassium as part of your screening process. So to kind of summarize um, these and discuss these results a little bit more, I think this paper presents really good evidence that there is a spectrum of renin-independent aldosterone um, production. And this spectrum parallels the severity of hypertension um, with some patients not being hypertensive, but having mildly elevated aldosterone levels, and then other patients being severely hypertensive with a significant proportion of those having elevated um, aldosterone, sometimes quite high. And this supports other accumulating evidence that primary aldosterone is not a di dichotomous diagnosis, but it's a pathological um, continuum. And the challenge is that the aldosterone to renin ratio really only recognizes the dichotomous nature of the disease um, when this was developed many, many years ago. Um, it has low sensitivity and it's a very poor screening test. Um, finally, the prevalence of primary aldosterone is high, but it does vary based on our definition of threshold values. And you can see here using the different um, threshold values, it ranges anywhere from you know, here about 20 to 60% using a low threshold, um, 10 to 15%, I'm sorry, 10 to 50% using a moderate threshold, and then using a conservative threshold, much lower numbers. I wanted to discuss briefly the Pathway 2 trial, which was a hypertension trial that came out in 2015. It was published in The Lancet. Um, the Jennifer Brown paper mentions this uh, trial in their discussion, so I wanted to show you some data. Um, and so this trial really looks at the effect of spironolactone on, bl on blood pressure lowering, and it provides kind of the clinical data to back up what um, Brown is arguing on more of a mechanistic side. So the objective of this study was to determine if spironolactone is um, superior to non-diuretic add-on drugs at lowering blood pressure in resistant hypertension. 
This study was conducted in the UK and they compared blood pressure readings in patients with resistant hypertension using the standard definition with add-on of spironolactone, doxazosin, and bisoprolol. This was a randomized and blinded trial, and each patient took each drug for 12 weeks, so they rotated um, drugs of each participant. And the outcome was just to look at the difference in home blood pressures between spironolactone and placebo, spironolactone and the average of bisoprolol and doxazosin, and then spironolactone in each bisoprolol and doxazosin. And what they found was that spironolactone was superior to lowering blood pressure around um, 8.7 millimeters of mercury compared to placebo. Um, and it was definitely better than doxazosin and bisoprolol. And what they noticed, and I'm gonna show you this on the next slide, was that it was especially effective at lowering blood pressure in those with suppressed renin. So this um, diagram shows um, spironolactone here in red. They were given an option of either 25 to 50 um, microgram, um, milligrams daily doxazosin, which is in green um, from four to eight milligrams daily and bisoprolol five to 10. And this graph shows um, a normal distribution of renin and here, um, with a low renin level, I'm just going to use less than one because they have it nicely marked, um, we can see that spironolactone was especially effective um, at lowering blood pressure with almost a probably around 18 millimeter mercury drop in systolic blood pressure um, compared to uh, the zero mark here, and that um, doxazosin and bisoprolol also did lower blood pressure um, but not nearly to the same extent of spironolactone. So what I'm hoping to show you is that um, this evidence supports um, the fact that there is a kind of a range of phenotypes um, and we should be using spironolactone a lot more uh, commonly um, to help treat primary hyperaldosteronism. So using our current diagnostic thresholds, the current guideline, which emphasizes the use of the aldosterone to renin ratio and the high circulating aldosterone overlooks this um, spectrum of disease. And the brown paper points out that if they had used the current threshold of serum aldosterone greater than 10, about 25% of hyperaldosteronism cases would be missed in the resistant hypertension group, which is a really significant percentage, especially when you start thinking about these numbers on a population basis um, where millions and millions of people have hypertension. And they propose that instead of um, thinking about this as kind of a yes-no diagnosis, we need to reframe our terminology to renin-independent aldosterone um, production which is applicable across an entire spectrum of blood pressures. And this also is gonna increase awareness, diagnosis, and targeted treatments. The strength of this study, I think this was a well-designed um, cross-sectional study that did include multiple geographic areas, um, including the Northeast, the South, and then the Mountain West. Um, they used a standardized diet uh, to ensure adequate salt loading. They did an analysis of the entire study population and a subgroup analysis of those with suppressed renin, which I think is important um, to help calculate those prevalence values. And then they adjusted based on uh, these factors here, which was important. And then using you know, multiple different thresholds um, to calculate the prevalence as opposed to just kind of using one threshold. 
So these are some of the strengths um, of their analysis. Some of the limitations of the analysis include that it's for distinct studies, study sites, and each of them did have slightly different inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, some of the protocols didn't allow for patients with diabetes while others did. Um, this may or may not be a nationally representative population. I think it is a pretty good um, population in terms of hypertension, but they, they did miss a lot of um, potential groups. The study protocols varied slightly and some um, labs use different assays. And so they do mention that, you know, the numbers might not be exactly um, the same from, from protocol to protocol. This kind of study design doesn't allow for causation, just association. The participants were not on antihypertensives except for the resistant hypertension group. Um, and so they point out that in real world, a lot of our patients coming into clinic are on antihypertensive medications. And they didn't evaluate for any other secondary causes of um, any other secondary causes of hypertension. And specifically, they actually excluded those with known secondary hypertension causes. So the implications of this study um, is that, you know, the classic phenotype of primary aldosterone and hypertension and hypokalemia is only found really in the most severe cases. Um, therefore, we should consider screening all patients with hypertension um, by obtaining serum, renin, and aldosterone levels because we really don't know or don't have a great way to predict these mild cases. We should avoid the aldosterone-renin ratio as it's insensitive and it's not a good screening test at all. And first instead, look to see if renin is suppressed. And then consider prescribing mineralocorticoids more mineralocorticoid agonist, antagonists more liberally in hypertensive patients, especially those with suppressed renin. And the pathway study really demonstrated this quite nicely. So here's my call to action, is that uh, the nephrology community really needs to lead the change in um, changing this screening process. And um, as I was looking for the, a slide here, um, this uh, actually was just published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism um, and uh, this year. And so um, Vadia and Kerry propose a new screening algorithm for primary aldosteronism. So their essential indications here are um, severe or resistant hypertension, hypertension with an adrenal mass or atrial fibrillation, any hypokalemia, and expanded indications are stage two hypertension. Um, I would actually argue that we should consider screening any patients with hypertension, um, given the you know, pretty low costs of these tests um, and the ability to really make a significant improvement in disease-targeted therapy. So they say the first um, step is to measure the plasma, renin, and aldosterone ratio. If renin is not suppressed, and in this article they use a um, level of 0.6 or a more liberal definition of 0.1. So if renin is higher than either of those thresholds, um, or if, yeah, it, um, it's very unlikely that primary aldosteronism is present and you can continue treating hypertension according to the current guidelines. However, if renin is suppressed, then you look at the aldosterone level, and I'm going to go this pathway. So again, if aldosterone, this is serum aldosterone, is low, likely negative, and primary aldosteronism is unlikely. And just treat hypertension according to current guidelines. 
if renin is suppressed um, and aldosterone is kind of in the middle range here between 5 and 15, they consider this a positive screen. And the next step that they ask is, are there access to specialist advanced resources and testing? Um, and if the answer is no, then they propose starting empiric mineralocorticoid antagonist therapy and stopping right there. If the answer is yes, then refer to a specialist and continue with the current kind of workup um, as proposed in the Endocrine Society guidelines, looking for um, salt suppression, um, potentially adrenal vein sampling, and potentially surgery. And so here they show mild primary aldosteronism is likely, and again, kind of asking whether or not there's access to specialists. And if the answer is no, it says start um, targeted therapy and dietary sodium restriction. So coming back up here now to suppress renin and high serum aldosterone, they consider this an overtly positive screen. Um, and then, then they look at the potassium levels um, to see if potassium is low. And again, looking at overt primary aldosteronism. Um, if we do have availability of a specialist and the patient is kind of interested in um, further workup, you can do an imaging and adrenal vein sampling and determine if you have the potential for a curative um, unilateral adrenalectomy. Um, if these are not an option or um, if the patient does not have uh, unilateral hyperaldosteronism, again, put them on a mineralocorticoid um, antagonist. I did listen to some hypertension uh, talks at American Society of Nephrology, and they were also proposing a similar um, algorithm uh, because the current guidelines are um, really not working for us as I demonstrated early in this talk. So my take home points here, um, Primary aldosteronism is common among people with normotension and hypertension, but it's rarely diagnosed or treated. It's not a dichotomous yes-no diagnosis, but a spectrum of disease. The current guidelines are burdensome, difficult to interpret, and are clearly ineffective because only around 2 to 3% of patients who meet criteria for screening are actually getting screened. And we really need to be screening every patient with hypertension um, for higher rates of case detection and treatment. And thankfully, we do have a targeted treatment with spironolactone and a plerinone um, that works well and um, can significantly limit some of the morbidity and the mortality um, associated with untreated primary aldosteronism. And with that, um, thank you. I'm not sure what happened to my text here. Sorry about this, but I wanted to thank uh, Dr. Brown and her colleagues for um, making this, uh, for doing this research. Um, the excellent people at ASN who talked more about aldosteronism. And then Dr. Nizar, um, who also reviewed uh, this talk with me and helped me prepare. So this is my last slide, and I did want to leave some time for discussion at the end because I can see that the chat box has been quite active. Thank you. So maybe I can, can everyone hear me? Well, thanks, thanks. You can't be heard. Yeah, thanks, Maria, for a wonderful presentation. I have to say, this is not just a pride to primary uh, hyperaldo, it is a pride to every disease we see. It's always a spectrum. 
uh, we they say they say we say BUN twenty is you know uh, whatever five to twenty is normal, and that's because if you take normal population, you check within ninety five percent they fall in this range, you know. So is it uh, twenty point one is abnormal? Nineteen point nine is normal? No, it's. Uh, I think we this is applied to everything, every disease we treat. Uh, as I have uh, worked with many fellows, uh, like we have, let's say we have a patient with uh, 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 mental status issue with AKI, BUN is 50, and we call, well, BUN is quite low, it's not uremic encephalopathy. Do we know that? We don't know that, because the uh, patient has a lot of underlying diseases, you know. 50 to the patient could be quite high uh, for on top of underlying diseases, you know. And like hepatorenal, I mean, we talk about this is hepatorenal. Not everyone with significant liver disease has hepatorenal physiology. Everything we treat daily basis is all a spectrum, you know. So I think that it's always good to check the lab, but uh, managing our patient based on the, in the context what lab, lab means. So if someone outdoor is a little bit on higher normal rate, or high normal, and the purpose is quite high. It's been treated with multiple medication, and uh, and it's not on aldosterone blockade medication, but aldosterone within the normal range. Is it okay to give it a try of aldosterone to block it and just follow the patient? Again, what normal means is for someone is for a ninety-five percent fall in that range. Doesn't mean for each individual. So I think we have to look at the lab and then use a private lab into the evaluating the patient and physiology, possible physiology, instead of just say abnormal and normal. That is a convenience we can tell the you know, primary care or the patient, but from our standpoint, we need to put whatever lab value in the context. So getting back a lot of a chat to talk about normal tensive primary hyper outdoor or, you know, outdoor within normal range, but the property is high. Again, if it's a spectrum, if it's a, a continuum, then the question is how do you call is a primary hyper outdoor or not, right? So it, it really doesn't matter what you call it. It's put in a context if the outdoor level in that kind of blood pressure, in the context of your patient management. Is it okay to give it a trial of that or not? And whether whatever you call it, it really doesn't matter. That's my comment on this, you know. The other comment I have is your first case, I mean, clearly magnesium is quite high. And within a day, family asked for stopping the, if it's really, we think likely magnesium is contributory. And before we lower it, is it uh, okay to just call, call it quit or not? I don't know, I'm just. Uh, so even though the patient had continued on CRRT, she still wasn't doing very well. Um, and also I think she'd been suffering and doing quite unwell before she came into the emergency room. Um, she was basically like bed bound because of her chronic pain. Um, so I think, you know, her, her quality of life was not good. Um, she had a lot of other medical problems, which I didn't address in the presentation, kind of trying to keep it focused. But I think most importantly was that when her family came to visit her, they said she never would have wanted to be intubated. She never would have wanted to kind of be in an ICU or get life support. 
Um, so she had made her wishes about, um, you know, life-sustaining treatment pretty clear to her family um, over a period of months to years before her admission. I also felt a little bit conflicted about uh, discontinuing and withdrawing um, treatment, but her family, both her husband and her daughter, were felt very confident that she would not have wanted aggressive medical care at the end of her life. Um, and so that's why the ICU team kind of proceeded with uh, withdrawal um, of life-sustaining therapies. Ting Chaolong wanted to make a teaching point here that <clears throat> the low blood pressure could have been, uh, and the need for pressors because of that, could have been uh, due to the high magnesium level as well. And just because of that, that wouldn't, you know, you would have waited and see if the blood pressure would improve with correcting the magnesium. And that, that in itself wouldn't have been a reason to withdraw care. So I agree with that. Um, but as we did continue her on here, even though the magnesium levels were getting lower, as, that, you know, as her magnesium was getting lower, the family came and they were pretty... Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I agree with that, though. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to add to the hy uh, to the hyperaldosteronism part, I would make sure that uh, not all renin independent uh, high aldosterone level, we should call it hyper primary hyperaldosteronism, because there are cases where, uh, let's say, obstructive sleep apnea, or just because somebody has obesity, you can get high aldosterone levels. So. Uh, yes, that, that would drive the blood pressure up, but it's not a primary hyperaldosteronism. So not, not everything equates that. Just to so I didn't discuss this, but I did find some um, emerging data, I guess I would say, about a link between hyperaldosteronism and obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and I can maybe find that paper and send it up to you if you want. But um, and that's why and that's why using spironolactam for obstructive sleep apnea uh, also helps uh, with yes. the blood pressure control. Just just empiric use. The other thing I wanted to add is that there are two drugs coming out now. One is finerenone, and the other one is exacerinone, which are new mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists that are non-steroidal. Uh, that uh, have long-acting uh, action, and uh, they are very specific for the mineralocorticoid receptors and are more potent than the existing drugs. And uh, we have a few more trials on the finerenone, and all the results were good. We're actually a site here for the finerenone. The exacerinone has a, a trial in hypertension, and the results on that are good as well. Tony, is, is that the small molecule that doesn't cause hyperkalemia at the rates of spironolactone and aplerinone? Yes, it doesn't cause hyperkalemia. Both of them actually don't cause hyperkalemia and they don't cause gynecomastia. Yes, you're correct. Hey, I have a question. If I was in that study with the aldosterone and I'm a normal tensive, let's say my blood pressure is 110 and then you check my aldo and it's high, how can you call me hyperaldo? Maybe I'm, you know, that's that could be appropriate raise in, al in aldosterone, or am I missing something? No, I think you're right. Um, I think that so they were looking at they weren't necessarily looking at. Let me go back to that slide. They were looking in renin suppressed individuals. 
So like, for example, here, um, even though they had normotension, they did have high aldosteronism, but they didn't have a clinical phenotype. I suppose these patients, these ones were on average younger. I think they were on average like 40 years old compared to the 50 and 60 year olds um, or 50 year olds. So it could be that this population is at increased risk for developing um, hypertension um, as they you know, get older over the next 10 to 15 years. I don't think that they necessarily need to be treated, um, but also, yeah, like Dr. Nizar said, they were looking at um, um, whether their renin was suppressed, and this slide doesn't specifically address that. But, but that slide is only patients that had renin suppression. So they were put on a, low, a high salt diet for a week. And so it is, it is abnormal for anybody to have aldosterone excretions that high when they're on a high salt diet. Does that make sense, Lewis? Thank you, yes. So, so just come back to comment on that. Again, whatever the normal range we call is 95% normal individual fall into that. I mean, you can have a normal blood pressure or normal everything else and still fall outside of that. Whether the treated, I mean, you can go to hyper auto relative to normal range. Is it a disease or not? You have to see if there is any disease to treat, you know. So just put in that kind of context, you know. And so you can ask a question if someone apparently all good, but uh, uh, high, run a pretty high outdoor, is it over time is going to be cardiac toxicity or not? I, I don't think that we know. I'll fall into the, the big picture of everything we see is a spectrum. And whatever you do, you have to put in a context what you're going to treat. And to Louis' questions from earlier on the chat, uh, if you have uh, high aldosterone and normotensive, is that deleterious? And uh, the answer is yes. Uh, high aldosterone does cause myocardial fibrosis. Uh, even uh, if you don't have hypertension, does cause uh, myocardial remodeling. And now there is actually data for uh, the same things uh, happening in the kidney, uh, meaning fibrosis. So uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's harder to to separate the normotensive uh, hyperaldosterone, but I think our high aldosterone levels in general are deleterious. So if we're gonna test someone, should we try to suppress their renin before we test them? I think so, um, at least using the brown kind of protocol um, where they did the 24-hour urine collection with the suppressed renin. The caveat to that is that this algorithm with that was just published here, um, the chronology algorithm, it doesn't really say, or maybe I can go back and look, but it doesn't really say that you need a suppressed um, or high sodium. It just says measure renin and aldosterone as the very first step. And then I guess here um, they they down at this category referral to specialists for aldosterone suppressions test. So I guess this is where you'd be looking at the um, urine sodium, but the very first step is just looking at plasma, uh, plasma renin and aldosterone. Does that answer your question, Lewis? So you, you check it and then only if it's in the equivocal range, then you do these specialized suppression tests. Yeah, and what this, algorithm is arguing for is just a simpler kind of methodology that can be easily implemented in a primary care setting um, where you know, PCPs can be measuring renin and aldosterone and then using this algorithm 
as opposed to really all of this being handled by specialists because we already know that it's not working. Um, so that's why they tried to just make it as simple as possible. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, we need to move on faculty meeting. But before we close, I just want to echo uh, John Nizar's comment. You know, whatever, when you see a high outdoor, it's probably good to do a suppression test, you know, because if it's physiological, it's suppressible. If it's autonomous coming from somewhere, it's not suppressible. Should I give you another index? How serious you want to look into this? You know, because whenever you check a, a level, you don't know when was that checked and what, what kind of situation. So question is suppressible, is physiological or not? You know, if it's not suppressible, it coming from autonomous, you know, and I give you potential thinking about its possible physiology. All right, thank you. Thank you. So, so for faculty, uh, let's stay on to, uh, to faculty meeting. In the first uh, 10 minutes, uh, MSC uh, people coming over to give up some update about the operation. I know not everyone involved in MFC, but uh, they want to do it first, you know, for 10 minutes. And let's uh, go over that and then we can do our faculty meeting. And Megan is on, I think, yeah. Hi there. Yeah, go. Hi, um, thanks for having us. We just wanted to jump on um, to give a little update on the MSC clinic and what's going on here. Um, so we'll just kind of start with staffing and let everybody, I'm, I think many of you know that we've not had a permanent nurse manager for the last uh, about a year. Um, we've had an interim, um, Jay Jackson, our, our previous nurse manager, uh, took a permanent position in the emergency department. So we've had an interim nurse manager, Helen, um, that has been splitting her time between Odo and um, MSC. Um, and we, uh, we finally received approval from the hospital to recruit a new nurse manager. And we were also able to get um, approval to recruit a full-time nurse manager. Um, so we just completed the recruitment process. We've selected a final candidate. Um, her name is Heidi Williams, and she'll be starting with the clinic um, on the 30th of this month, um, so here in a couple of weeks. And um, as, I, as I said, Heidi will be dedicated 100% to the medicine specialty clinic, so we don't have to share her with any other clinics. Um, so she'll be spending her first um, probably around month um, kind of working with the staff in the clinic and really getting to know each of the different services and their needs so that she can have a good understanding of um, of the different, uh, the different specialties within our clinic. Um, so we're very excited for that. Um, and then just to give everybody some updates on our, um, our medical assistant staffing. So we are currently down six medical assistant lines. Um, we are uh, asking for help um, regularly from other areas. Um, nursing leadership is aware of our situation and that we are down quite a few staff. Um, and actually Melissa Gross is asking um, for us every week to send her just what our clinical volumes are for the next coming weeks so that she can um, look at other clinics and see about getting us help here during the, the time that we're working on recruiting. Um, and we're also just looking at more creative ways for recruiting and getting people in to help with the clinic flow. So we're looking at um, nursing assistants, we're looking at LPNs, anybody just to um, kind of help uh, to make sure that our clinic or that our patients are able to flow um, through the clinic quickly. So. Um, those are just a couple of our staffing updates. We really hope to have the MA staffing resolved um, soon. Um, and and uh, as I mentioned, we're very excited to have a new nurse manager joining our team full time. 
Um, so we hope that, you know, I know that I've sent a couple of emails out um, just letting you guys know that, or letting all the faculty and clinic that know, that day know that we're going to be short staffed. Um, and we obviously don't want that to be the norm. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and especially with COVID um, and, and some staffing changes, and we are having to reassign some of our staff um, to other areas in, in the coming weeks. So that's kind of adding to this as well. So um, we just wanted to give an update and, and see how you guys are doing. And, um, you know, uh, if there's anything that is going on in the clinic that you need help with or that you want us to be aware of, please don't hesitate to reach out to me um, or Taylor or Dr. Davis or Dr. Tukin. Um, or uh, Heidi went once she's on board. So that was really all the updates that I had. I guess um, if anyone has any questions, I know that you guys probably have a full meeting today, but um, I actually do have a question, Megan. Yeah. I had two questions. One is perhaps it's my just my observation, but on Tuesdays the lab is incredibly slow these days. I know with COVID and with checking patients in and so forth, but it really has slowed up my particular clinic. I mean, I'm contemplating just asking patients to go a day ahead or a week ahead to get the labs. Can you look into that? Why everything is so slow now? Yeah. And, and you're talking like patient wait time or getting results? Getting my results. It's okay. hours. Yeah. To get some of the results. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we can definitely look into that for you. And is Sharon staying when you said there's staffing issues? Erin is there and Sharon is staying? Yeah. As far as I know, um, I, I think, I, I just mean, so currently we have um, six open positions of people that are already gone. Oh, I see. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Any other questions for Megan? All right. Yeah, if anything comes up um, in the future, just don't hesitate to reach out to us. And thanks for letting us join.